who's uh, Professor James Heller. Uh, Jim was educated in England, gaining a BA in history at Oxford, and then uh, a PhD at Cambridge, as well as an MA at Memorial University. As you know, Mr. John's Newfoundland. He then joined the history department at Memorial University, where he remained throughout his career until his retirement, um, and he is now Professor Emeritus at Memorial. Uh, although he taught in various areas at Memorial, his research um, very much focused on the history of Labrador and Newfoundland. He's the author, author and editor of a large number of books and articles, I attempt to go through them, but he's particularly looked at things like the Moravian mission in Labrador, uh, other aspects of Labrador's history, as well as uh, a, a wide range of aspects of the history of uh, Newfoundland, especially the period in which it um, possessed responsible government, i.e. between 1855 and 1934. He's also studied the move towards confederation with Canada in the late uh, 1940s, and his current work is examining the premiership of Sir Robert Bond, 1900 to 1909, which will obviously feature in his uh, presentation uh, this evening, when he argues the quasi-independent colony of Newfoundland is at its most assertive. So, uh, Jim, you're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed, and it's excellent to be here and to see all these faces around the table whom I saw in the past, um, and it's extremely nice to see you all again. Um, so I will try to be precise um, and to not keep you here all evening. Um, and I sort of put this up here because that is these are part of the world about which I should be talking. And so it's about fish inevitably, uh, which is a kind of a central feature of this sort of part of the world. Um, and it's a competitive part of the world in the fishery in that there was competition between fishermen from the States, from sort of Canada, and from sort of Newfoundland itself, and from the French. And so it's a question of how all these competing interests were to work themselves out. And the crucial period, so it sort of seems to me, is around the turn of the 20th century, between the sort of end of the 19th century up until about uh, 1910, you could sort of stretch it up to 1914. But, you know, that is sort of basically when these uh, things come into focus. And of course it's a time too when from the British sort of a perspective Britain was changing its imperial priorities. It, 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 it was a time when the British were trying to make stronger links with Japan, with the French, with the Russians and the United States. And I want to to, to, to sort of concentrate here on the implications for sort of Newfoundland of two of those shifts, the sort of shift towards making peace with sort of France and to clearing the state, clearing the slate, I should say, with the United States of America. And what the implications were, therefore, uh, for sort of Canada and for sort of Newfoundland as well. Um, and of course, it sort of needs to to sort of be recalled that uh, Newfoundland was at this point still 
politically independent in the British Empire, that it was not yet a Canadian province, uh, which did not happen until sort of 1934. Uh, 1949, I'm sorry, it was the end of responsible government until 1934, but it was then 1949. And it's a factor which is sometimes forgotten, um, and, and I think it needs to be emphasized that in this period, certainly, Newfoundland had a distinctly independent view on the world and a sort of independent view on these disputes, both with France and the United States. And the Canadians were not always happy about that, nor the British back in, back in sort of London. <clears throat> so it's a kind of a complicated story, um, and I don't have a lot of time. Um, so I'll try to be as straightforward as I can about this. Now, for the sort of French and for the United States, their rights in these sort of waters derive from sort of treaties which had been signed with the British Crown uh, in the past. In terms of the French, uh, their, their rights went back to uh, 1713 and the Treaty of Utrecht when uh, they were given rights on the so-called French shore of Newfoundland, to which I will sort of come in a minute, um, and the rights of the United States derived from a sort of treaty signed at the sort of end of the sort of War of 1812 in 1818, which also defined their rights in British waters uh, to the North of American waters. And I think it also needs to be recalled that these sort of treaties were signed at a time when so Newfoundland was not a colony in the official sense. That although it was so recognized as a British island from so 1713 onwards, it was not given any formal kind of a colonial status until the 1820s. Uh, and I think that that needs to be stressed, it, um, that it was assumed here uh, in sort of Britain um, that it was a fishery, that it was a place where you went to fish. Uh, it was a place that was, that was really governed by the Royal Navy at that time. And it was not until 1825 that the sort of naval presence started to subside um, and there was a civilian governor at that point from, from then on. So these were sort of treaties signed at a time when it was not perceived of as a colony of settlement, but was perceived of as a place where you fished. That it was an industry, not a colony. Uh, and it was only in the years after 1815 that that attitude changed, both in sort of London uh, and, and in St. John's, where there was a a very uh, strenuous sort of a campaign to be recognized as a colony of settlement and as a real colony with all the status that that provided. Um, and there was a rather reluctant acquiescence at the British end, as there was to, to sort of, uh, to these sort of subsequent constitutional changes. So with the French, whoops, is this the one? Yeah. So, with the French, uh, they had rights on the Newfoundland coast, as I say, which derived from the sort of Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, but were redefined in 1783. So in the period here, we are sort of talking about that particular kind of a designation on the so-called French shore of Newfoundland 
Um, and they also owned these two islands here of Saint-Pierre et Miquelon, which are still French, um, very French, in fact, uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, and it's an interesting kind of a survival, in fact, uh, there. But on the French shore now, it is really just names of places, um, and you don't have much of a French you know, sort of a legacy there uh, in that sense. But anyway, these, these sort of rights uh, on this on Newfoundland coast were renewed at the end of the wars in 1815. Uh, it, it was a sort of seasonal right of fishery, uh, but it was ill-defined. Um, and so really there were, uh, there were disputes about the precise sort of the nature of the French rights on the treaty shore from uh, really 1815 through to 1904. These sort of French always held that their rights on the shore were exclusive, that it was a kind of a fishery which was a survival of their claimed sovereignty over the island of Newfoundland, which they had held up until 1713. And so they claimed that they had the rights to a undisturbed seasonal fishery. And so Newfoundlanders did not have the right, technically, to sort of fish on that part of the shore. Now, of course, these sort of claims were hugely resented in the colony um, after 1825. Um, where it was always claimed that the sort of right to fish was a concurrent right. And the sort of Newfoundlanders had every right to fish on the shore, so long as they did not disturb the French. Um, and that they also had the right, anyway, and there was a whole lot of other disputes which I don't have the time to go into, uh, but, uh, but it was a real focus for colonial nationalism. And if you are talking about it, a, a sort of a Newfoundland identity, which really starts to come into focus uh, by the 1840s, 1850s, certainly, and into the 1860s, uh, then you have a kind of a Francophobia there, which is a focus that the resentment against the French shore uh, was very much a part of the colonial nationalism. And a resentment, too, at the British for always, so it seemed in St. John's, to be giving in to the French, um, as it was uh, perceived there. Um, and it's true that the sort of British, uh, only gradually, over the second half of the 19th century, came towards the colonial view of the rights on the French shore held by the French. It was a, it was a slow movement, in fact. Um, and the sort of British, really up until sort of 1904, when it was finally settled, more or less, um, were always concerned about a possible confrontation on the French shore. There were naval squadrons on the French shore every summer. There were patrols, and there are logbooks, and there are photographs, there are, you know, there's a huge kind of documentation on the French shore in sort of French and in English as a result. Um, and uh, there was always a fear in London that some dispute over lobsters, over herring, over codfish, over some, something of the sort, could cause some kind of a confrontation between these squadrons. Uh, now, it never happened, but there was always a fear here that it might. 
Uh, and so hence Britain tended to move with immense caution on all issues with the French shore, which caused a lot of resentment, as I say, in the colony and became a focus of nationalism. Now, on, on the side of the United States, um, they held rights, as I say, under sort of 1818 treaty, uh, signed at the end of, of, of the sort of War of 1812, um, and it drew a distinction in the treaty between the, the sort of waters of the Newfoundland and the waters of, of, of the sort of other colonies uh, to, to the, to the uh, south of the island and, and to the west. Um, so, so far as uh, Newfoundland was concerned, the Americans could actually fish on the south coast of Newfoundland, on the west coast, and on the Labrador coast. Uh, but they were supposed to move away from their fishing places if there was any settlement. That was the, that was the idea. Um, and, uh, and so far as, as, as the sort of rest of British North America was concerned, they were supposed to stay outside this old three-mile limit uh, to, to sort of fish, but they could come into sort of British ports in, say, sort of Nova Scotia uh, for sort of wood and water um, and for shelter and for repairs, but this sort of treaty said for no other purpose whatsoever. Uh, and here's the treaty. If you, if you want to have a look at it, it's a bit long, but uh, that is the key clause which has become a, a real kind of a bone of contention after 1900 as to what it actually meant uh, in terms of, of, of the sort of rights of the Americans. Um, and the central question, as it sort of grew up really uh, in the later 19th century, from the 1870s onwards really, uh, through to these sort of Hague arbitration of, sort of 1910, was uh, what, for what sort of purposes could the Americans come into British North American ports? Uh, what did the word shelter actually mean? Uh, what did for other purpose actually mean? Um, what uh, were they allowed to do? And, and the key question here, and, and it was certainly key, uh, because um, after, you know, certainly by the 1870s and the 1880s, um, what the Americans were doing, actually, was to come into British North American ports to get sort of bait fishes, and they would then sail onto the banks, and they would fish on the banks. But what they relied on from sort of British North America were crews, and, and also bait fishes. Um, because they were now fishing offshore, and uh, it's, it was the same for the sort of French as well. There's a move by the French in the 19th century to move essentially from the shore fishery to the offshore banks, where they fished with sort of baited hooks from dories and from small boats. And you can see them here in this somewhat romanticized picture, um, which I think is an American print, um, and sort of shows them in, in, in their sort of dories with their long lines, uh, putting over these baited hooks so as to catch the cod, uh, which was the standard way in, in this 19th century. 
This is the sort of era, of course, before steam trawling. And so, you know, and so after 1900, that is when the steam trawlers start to arrive on the banks from France um, and sort of so on. And, and so it, um, you know, that sort of a mode of fishing went into sort of second place at that time. But the sort of bait fishes were extremely important. And here are some of the, of the sort of places where people came, came for bait on the on the sort of Newfoundland coast anyway. I, I could not find, find a map of the uh, Nova Scotian coast. But here you have sort of places where, where the sort of French would come and the Americans as well on the Newfoundland coast for sort of herring and for capelin and for squid in that sequence. And those were the fishes that were used for bait. Um, and, they, and it was highly valued in the later 19th century. This was a, a really kind of a valuable sort of a commodity. But the, but the sort of practice was that the French and the sort of fishermen from the States would sort of purchase bait from the local fishermen. In other words, it was outsourced in our language. Okay, they would, they would sort of hire the crews and they would purchase the bait in sort of British North America. Um, and uh, so it was seen as, a, as an extremely valuable sort of a trade. And in, in the sort of a localities, this was viewed as, as, as a sort of valuable trade, okay? And a source of employment um, for the Americans as well, um, you know, because it was only on the United States vessels that they actually hired crew on, on, on the sort of French that they would just sort of purchase bait, but it was still a sort of valuable trade, and the sort of centre of it was on the sort of south coast of Newfoundland, uh, which was close to the banks, um, and was a valuable source of all these fishes. So anyway, that was the sort of a situation. It was a kind of an informal sort of a code of conduct by the 1870s through to the early early sort of the 20th century. And it was a tolerated code. It was it was observed by everybody. Uh, it was, uh, and it seemed to work to each side's benefit, uh, to a degree. Um, and and so that, that that there's a kind of interdependence then of of these fisheries, of the sort of inshore fisheries and the offshore fisheries, and they sort of feed off each other in this sort of period uh, up to then. But it then began to occur to the Newfoundland government and to the Canadian government uh, that you might be able to bargain with the bait. That if bait was so valuable, then you could bargain with it. You could do something with it, particularly with the United States. And so there's, there's a persistent kind of an attempt from the 1860s or, or so 70s on um, for the Canadians and the Newfoundlanders after 1880 to try to bargain free trade with the United States using bait as a part of the ammunition. And the Newfoundlanders certainly saw bait as a real weapon in their arsenal to try to get free trade with the United States, which certain of them saw as being an essential prop to their continued independence. Uh, I think I should say also in sort of passing that there, that there was a vote in sort of Newfoundland in 1869 as to whether it ought 
or to become a province. Um, and they turned it down overwhelmingly. And so from that term, and so from, from that time on, it was assumed that it would stay independent. I mean, there was always a Confederate undertow, but uh, by and large, all the governments after that point, after 1870, had to assume that it was a politically independent in the empire, um, and that all the economic policy had to be sort of predicated on that. And, and so, so reciprocity then uh, was seen as important. Now, in sort of Canada, uh, they made several attempts in the 1870s and the 1880s to negotiate uh, trade agreements with the United States. Uh, by the end of the 1880s, I think that the Canadians had more or less given up. And the Bay Trade went ahead on a kind of a licensed basis at that point. And they were not really trying, after the late 1880s, to really try to bring about any kind of a new treaty. I mean, there were certainly those who, 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 who sort of tried and who sort of spoke about it, but it just didn't happen. This was a kind of a protectionist sort of a period in the United States, and, and there was not a lot of interest uh, in that particular option. Uh, but on the island, uh, they did take a slightly different view. The uh, Newfoundland government took the view that sort of bait control could serve two sort of purposes. It could do something to the French, and it could gain a sort of free trade arrangement with the United States. Now, on the sort of French side, what was really concerning them in St. John's was that uh, a French fish was competing heavily with Newfoundland fish in the Spanish market, in the Portuguese market, in the Italian market, uh, which were the prime markets for the Newfoundland fish. And it was the major export at that time, obviously. So there was a real concern that the only way to do something about the French fishery was to curtail the sale of bait to French. And, of course, this was a highly controversial policy, uh, you know, both at the local end and elsewhere with the French, because these were French saw it as a kind of declaration of war, basically. Um, and the act was passed in 1886. Um, and the British government was very dubious about giving royal assent. In the end, it did, but it was very slow about it, uh, and it sort of tried to find all, all, all sorts of ways out. Uh, um, so they were extremely unhappy about that. And the second side of that sort of policy was to bargain with the United States for sort of reciprocity, and to try to do that, and to do it independently and not on the, on, on the sort of coattails of Canada. There was a real feeling that you know, sort of, that there was far too much baggage in Canada, and that it would be far simpler if the Newfoundlanders did it themselves, and and had their own 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 sort of a particular treaty. So they did. Uh, so the first attempt was in 1890, uh, and it failed. It was sort of squashed as a result of a Canadian protest. Actually, at that at at that time, they were. Um, extremely angry about it, and they persuaded the British to, to suspend the treaty at, at that point, essentially. 
of course, it's a real question as to whether it, it would, in fact, ever have, you know, surpassed the Senate in the States. I mean, that's up in the air. But there certainly was a draft treaty in 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 1890, uh, which actually failed as a result of a Canadian protest. Um, and uh, so it was extremely unpopular. And the sort of British, of course, didn't really sort of like this policy because it did not want to antagonize either France or Canada. And yet here was a small, you know, sort of a colony of settlement, uh, only a few hundred thousand, well, only about a hundred thousand people or so, uh, starting to sort of adopt a policy which could cause real ructions. And yet it had responsible government, it had the same status as the other responsible government colonies. So how do you say no in the long run? It was a you know, I, I, I mean, it was a kind of a conundrum for the colonial office at this at this point, actually, as to as to how it how it would be done. Anyway, I have I have not sort of shown you a few uh, slides here. Um, this shows how sort of rich the, the 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 sort of fishery was of sort of Newfoundland and the eastern seaboard. At the end of the 19th century, this is this is the you know sort of richness of the sort of biomass in sort of 1900, and the red is is the sort of richest fishing grounds. So you can see that this was highly competed area. I mean, this was this was this was extremely important, and it was a big industry. It was a valuable industry. It was a big employer. Um, all of these things were obviously important, and so you know sort of here was this island sitting on the edge of this huge resource, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you, uh, you know, get something for yourself out of this? I mean, I, I think that's, that's a part of it. Um, and it's shown too in, sorry, I'm, and so, on the, and so you can certainly see that the actual size of the fish in, in, at the start of the century was uh, pretty huge. This was actually taken on on the on, on, on this sort of Labrador coast in in 1901 so on the sort of South Labrador coast. So we have a small boy there who was called sort of Victor Croucher. We actually know his name, and, and it's that sort of battle harbour in sort of 1901. And so that is the average size of fish in 2005. So it's been a it's been sort of quite a. <laughs> Quite a sort of onslaught, really, on the on the on the on the sort of fish stocks at the time, um, and of course, cod was the sort of national emblem in Newfoundland in a sense, and that's a stamp from the 1890s. And I think it's a fairly, you know, I, I mean, it's a quite sort of elegant stamp, I think, as well. In fact, that it really sort of shows it at the, at that time, but. Um, Anyway, it, it sort of speaks to the kind of a reliance of the colony on the codfish um, and on sort of cod exports and its need to find markets and its need to protect markets and so hence all its problems with the French and the Americans um, and the need to do something about that and their friction with the Canadians, you know, who did not view it in, in sort of quite the same light uh, at, the, at, at the same period. They were not such a a slimly based economy, shall we say, as the sort of Newfoundlanders were uh, at, the, at that time. I'm not sure where the next one is. No. Okay. So anyway, this is my man Bond.
Senator Robert Vaughan, um, who became the so, Premier of Newfoundland in 1900. Um, and uh, he was Premier until so, 1999. Uh, it was a controversial sort of, sort of Premiership in sort of certain ways. Uh, but I can't go into that, and I'm not here to actually talk about that. But he was faced with this switch in British foreign policy at, at that time, because it's into 1900, as he became Premier, that the French started to give sort of signals that they were willing to talk about an end to the French shore problem, that they were willing to talk about some kind of settlement that would put it on ice, that would sort of park it, and would allow a kind of a rapprochement between the two countries at this time. And, and the sort of British, of course, were extremely interested in this. Uh, and the other side of this, of course, was a sort of bond, was a believer in free trade with the United States, that he wanted sort of reciprocity, and he wanted to have another try with the United States to, to sort of get a free trade treaty. Um, and he thought that it was a propitious time to do it. Uh, he had believed for, for a long time that such an agreement was essential to the future of the colony, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, so, for the sort of British then, at this point, what they had to do was to keep Bond on side so as to get an agreement with the French, but to, allow, but to, also, keep, but to also do sort of something to, uh, on, the, on, on the sort of, sort of reciprocity side um, at the same time, so as, but at the same time, they would have to also placate Canada in sort of such a way uh, as to prevent any, any, any sort of uh, difficulty there. So it's a delicate kind of a political situation at the start of the premiership in external affairs, and I don't have time to go into domestic affairs, and I won't even touch them. Um, well, in the end, uh, he he. He sort of went to sort of Washington in 1902, um, and he was able to negotiate a draft treaty with sort of John Hay, who was in in the sort of administration at at that time. Uh, but uh, but they were not pleased in sort of Canada. Uh, but a Chamberlain at the sort of colonial office felt that it was a permission that could not be refused any longer. And that if the Canadians couldn't, couldn't even do a sort of treaty for themselves, then he did not have cause to prevent Bond from having a try. So it, 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 it was a kind of a change of attitude at that point. Although the British uh, suspected that he would have a hard time in the Senate, which was Republican-controlled at that time and was therefore protectionist. Um, so, um, but anyway, they sort of allowed it through. I mean, it, it's, and, uh, and so Bond uh, was certainly kept on side on that particular thing. But he also had to do with this sort of settlement with France. Now, this was a long, drawn-out sort of a negotiation, which I don't have the time to go into, and I would sort of uh, uh, bore you silly with it. And it's all in a sort of article which I wrote a few years ago if you really want to see all the ins and outs of it. But the kind of a major difficulty was that, that the sort of French said that they had to have bait supply guaranteed on the south coast of Newfoundland for their offshore fishery. And they wanted some kind of a territorial compensation 
in Africa for sort of leaving, leaving the French shore. And the British said no to the second, and the sort of Newfoundlanders said no to the first. So the question was, uh, how do you sort this one out? Uh, in the end, what the sort of final agreement did, this was in 1904 as a part of the Entente Cordiale, was that uh, Britain provided a, a sort of slice of West Africa, as they sort of did in those days, right, to uh, do these things, um, and, and they avoided the bait issue by not including bait in the deal at all. Bait was just parked separately, and it, and it was a deal done with, you know, sort of bait on the sidelines. And the final agreement then provided that the French would not use any part of the shore in the future ever again. They would not build stages, they would not build flakes, they would not build houses, they would not build any, any sort of storage there or sort of bunkhouses, uh, but they could still fish on the shore if they so chose. They could still fish, but they could not land, in other words. That was, that was the deal. Um, now, as on Newfoundland, uh, this was a deal which the sort of government did eventually accept. But, of course, Newfoundlanders had already, had always wanted a deal that would remove the French from the French shore absolutely and completely, that it would be absolute, absolutely finished. And so this it did not do in the Entente, because the French could still fish. Um, but, uh, and it was also held in St. John's that it had to be approved not only by the sort of government of Newfoundland, but by the legislature. And this was another fight, which I don't want to go into too much, uh, but the, the sort of case of the colony rested on a dispatch of 1857 uh, in which the sort of colonial office had said that in future, if there was any uh, modification of the sort of territorial or sort of maritime rights of the colony, then it would have to be adequately consulted, and the community, also Newfoundland, would have to be consulted. And so this was seen as a kind of a local Magna Carta. And there was a considerable shock in St. John's until 1904, when the British government said, no, we do not need any kind of ratification from the legislature of a colony. That, in other words, all it needs is a vote of the British Parliament. We don't need anything more than that. And your rights are not being sort of modified, your sort of rights are being increased. They are being augmented as a result of this deal. Anyway, there was a furious exchange over this. Um, and, uh, but in the end, um, I think what happened was the bond moved some motions in the House of Assembly, which were, which were sort of passed, but, but they had no binding, binding effect. And so what this actually showed was, of course, that the imperial center could always override the sort of colony when sort of push came to shove. That it would always be consulted and an agreement might be altered, as indeed it was in this case. But in the end, it was the British who said, this is the best deal that you're going to get. And if it is minimally acceptable, then that is what will go through Parliament because there's too much else hanging on. As there was, I mean, there was Egypt, there was North Africa, there was, there was sort of West Africa, there was there was a huge sort of a, uh, of a sort of a, 
an array. So, uh, you know, there was a kind of amph- so the kind of a reception in the in 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 the, in the sort of colony was a bit ambivalent, but it actually marked the end of the French shore problem. I mean, very few Frenchmen ever fished on the French shore again. There were a few, but it was it was extremely uh, slight, um, and uh, they were confined to the southwest coast, um, and it was only a, only only a few outfits from Saint Pierre ever came. Um, so it was the effective end, but of course it had to be done by a compromise, and so Bond found it extremely hard to actually sell a compromise at this point. Um, and it's at this point, of course, that the, that the French desire for a deal with the British played to the favor of the colony. Okay, that the switch in, you know, that the, the sort of a desire in London for a rapprochement uh, was, was, to the, was to the advantage of the Newfoundland government in that they got much of what they wanted. Not all, but a substantial amount. Now, on the American side, uh, that was a rather different argument. Um, they, as I've said, proved to uh, settle a treaty, a, 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 a sort of a draft treaty in 1902. Uh, it was not like in sort of London. There were some sort of problems about imperial preference and other things of that kind. Um, and it was disliked by the Canadians for sort of obvious, obvious reasons. Uh, and the key attitude here uh, was the attitude of the Senate. And here it was the sort of senators from sort of Massachusetts, mainly Henry, Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, who, was the, who was the main mover and the major opponent, in spite of tremendous lobbying uh, from the sort of Newfoundland government uh, on behalf of the treaty, and some support from the sort of Boston interests, actually, for the treaty at, the, at that time. But the sort of port of Gloucester was adamantly opposed, as were most of the fishing ports. Um, and by sort of 1905, it was clear that the draft treaty had effectively failed in the Senate. So, so what happened then in sort of Newfoundland at this point? Well, what, what sort of Newfoundland did uh, was to retaliate. Uh, Bond, Bond decided that they would bring bait sanctions against the United States in an attempt to make them climb down on the treaty. Now, I have always thought this was a, a highly mistaken strategy, to put it, at its, at its best. Um, what, what they so tried to do was to prevent Americans obtaining herring into Newfoundland ports in the winter. Now, this was ostensibly, this was a bait trick, okay? You know, because it was a bait fish. And the Americans would, would sort of come up to the, to the sort of south coast and the west coast of Newfoundland in the winter, uh, and they would fish for herring, uh, which was then frozen on board, and it, would, and it would then go back to sort of Boston or to, or, or to wherever it, it was sort of marketed. And I'm sure that there was some of the fish that was marketed as a food fish. I mean, I'm sure that's true. Anyway, sort of Bond tried to sort of stop this trade. It was immensely unpopular on the south coast, on the west coast, right, on the southeast coast of Newfoundland, where the fishermen were used to trading with Americans, where it was a part of their livelihood, where, where it was a part of what they did. It was how they, 
how they sort of made a living. Um, and, uh, and, and on the other side of that, the, the sort of British government took the view that Newfoundland herring was not going to upset this whole kind of a process of a rapprochement with the United States. They were not going to have it, in other words. They were not going to, to allow Bond to impose sanctions on the American fishermen, and they didn't. And there was a series of highly repressive moves by the British government to prevent the Newfoundland government from putting this particular policy into operation. Um, and uh, it was, it, I mean, I, I do not know of, of any other sort of instance of this, but they essentially um, took actions here in London which overrode the uh, legislation of the colony. Uh, and, and, and they prevented its implementation, and the Royal Navy went to see that there was no trouble on the west coast of Newfoundland uh, during that, that sort of a particular fishery. Um, and in that kind of a circumstance, Newfoundland had really no option but to agree that this whole dispute go to arbitration. And this was a very early instance of a dispute going to the arbitration court at The Hague. In fact, it, it was a quite early instance of this. Um, and um, I should also say, perhaps in passing, that the British had always opposed anything to do with the French going to arbitration, anything over lobsters or herring or anything of that kind, or the meaning of the treaties, because they feared that they might lose on key issues. Uh, and so they always said no arbitration or anything to do with the French. But on the American one, uh, there was a consensus that there was a good British case on this. Um, and the key question was whether coastal states and, 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 and the sort of colonies could in fact regulate the fishery even though it was a treaty fishery. So in other words, could, could the sort of Canadians and, and, sort of, uh, and sort of Newfoundlanders pass the regulations which would apply to the Americans in their territorial waters and offshore as well. Anyway, that was the, that was the key question at The Hague in, 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 in sort of 1910, which was largely argued by the Canadian Council, in fact, um, at, that, at that point. And, and the United States, uh, I think, accepted quietly, although they argued that they had a wholly free fishery, free of regulation, uh, I think that, that they also accepted uh, that, there would be, that there would have to be regulation of some sort, you know, because it was a joint fishery. Uh, but the, so, so, so from their point of view, the, the sort of question was, how is the fishery to sort of be regulated and how is that to be managed? And, and, and so how would that sort of come through? So, so in the end, what the court did was to uphold the British case, if you like, or the, or, 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 or the sort of so-called British case at, at, at this point. So long as the sort of regulations which were imposed by the Canadians and the Newfoundlanders did not sort of violate the treaty and were reasonable. And if the Americans thought that they were not reasonable, they had as a right of appeal to an independent body at that point. 
For that reason, some sort of commentators have said this was a kind of a moral victory, but it was not a real victory. Um, and you can see the point in that argument, I think, at this point. Um, but I still think that it's of some importance in that it certainly established the sort of right of the coastal state to sort of make regulations in this instance, or the, or the, or, or the, or the sort of states, I should say. And it also, I, th I think importantly, had some things to say about how you draw the three-mile limit um, and about the sort of nature of bays and when did bays cease to be bays and all of that sort of thing. So it's a lengthy judgment, but I think it's a very important one in that point, and it shouldn't be dismissed uh, you know, because it, 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 it was something of a compromise, um, as these things tend to be, I think, um, at this point. Um, but I think that it uh, clearly uh, ended, ended that particular dispute and it sort of settled that down as the 1904 treaty had in fact sort of settled down the whole business with the French and so from sort of that time forward really these, these extremely tense debates over, over sort of fisheries in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and, and on the Grand Banks and elsewhere tended to sort of simmer down and they don't become as important in the future and as for Newfoundland at this point, I think it had been taught as a real lesson that, that it did not have the right to any kind of independent foreign policy. That in other words, Britain would sort of squash it, that imperial affairs would always come first in these instances. Um, and, as and, and I think it's extremely true to say that Newfoundland had to accept at this point that he had the kind of stature of a dominion, but it didn't have the status. And I think that was to remain the case through until the end of responsible government. I mean, certainly, um, you know, in the First World War, it was, it, it was, it was in the Imperial War Cabinet. Um, I mean, it was at Versailles, but, you know, in a sort of very much of a sidelined role. It was in the Statute of Westminster mentioned. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it was very much seen and accepted after 1910, that it was at the bottom of the pecking order, which I think is an interesting change. Um, and I think it has something to do with the fact that Bond was defeated in sort of 1909, and he went into a kind of a political exile, um, and the people who, who succeeded him uh, were much more ready to accept a subordinate status, both to Canada um, and in the British Empire, more sort of widely. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Thank you.